The climate crisis is spiraling out of control. We cannot go on like this. We must come together and act together for the common good. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable July. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. As always, we'd like to start by acknowledging the country of the First Nations people on which we live, work, play and broadcast. The Wathaurong people, we pay tribute to the elders past, present and those that earn that honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land. It's land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We can never hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for First Nations Australians. And we all get an opportunity to start that process of justice for them by voting yes in the upcoming referendum. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality said Martin Luther King Jr. And yes, for sure, we need some truth-telling and we do need care and unconditional love. But what has the final word in this world at the moment, in reality, is money. Money talks, money decides. When it should be in a democracy, it should be people talk and the people decides. The world is hotter than ever and the governments are not doing what they're supposed to do to protect us against what's coming. They've known about this since conferences that were held in 1988. Actually, the government organized a conference about climate and everyone agreed, oh, we have to do something. And yet we didn't because what happened was our governments were hijacked by vested interests. Money. Over to our reporter, who is having an eye on what's happening around the world, Colin Market, OAM. Do you have any good news for us today, Colin? Oh, look, that's debatable, Mick. But I will start an unusual roundup. Um, this particular one brings together climate data and effects from the year so far. Globally, a record number of heat records were broken in 2023, with June, July and August measured as the hottest consecutive months ever recorded. And that prompted United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres to state flatly that he was no longer going to warn of climate breakdown because it had already begun. The UN's chief climate body, the World Meteorological Organization, had released data showing August was the second hottest month on record, following the record July. Our planet has just endured a season of simmering, the hottest summer on record, Guterres said. Scientists have long warned of what our fossil fuel addictions will unleash. Surging temperatures demand a surge in action. Leaders must turn up now for climate solutions. We can still avoid the worst of climate chaos, but we don't have a moment to lose, 
So far, this year is already the second warmest on record for the full year behind 2016, when the Great Barrier Reef experienced some of the worst coral bleaching and global temperatures soared because it was an El Nino effect event. The Bureau of Meteorology is yet to declare an El Nino for 2023, although other international weather agencies, which have different criteria, have already announced one. But whether it's declared or not, Australia will probably experience above-average temperatures this summer, increasing the fire risk considerably. Director of the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at ANU, Professor Hilary Bambrick, said climate change had turned up the temperature on extreme heat. It's going to get worse, but we can choose to limit how much worse it gets by cutting fossil fuel use, she said. It's quite simple. We can't keep stoking the fire if we want the room to cool down. This is a warning for Australia. The memories of the black summer are still fresh in our minds, including that intense and prolonged exposure to bushfire smoke. The UN data also showed August recorded the highest global monthly average sea surface temperature of 20.98 degrees. That breaks a previous record that was set in 2016. One factor that has particularly concerned scientists is the record low Antarctic sea ice extent, the lowest since satellite observations began in the late 1970s. That loss of coverage is concerning because sea ice helps reflect heat. Without ice cover, more heat is being absorbed by the oceans. As temperatures warm in the poles, winter conditions change in nearby regions, causing globally more extreme weather events. But finally, I have a couple of pieces of positive news from Europe. First, the UK announced another new but very different record. This was for government spending on new projects spanning onshore wind, solar, tidal and geothermal initiatives. Altogether, it will deliver 3.7 gigawatts of clean energy over the next decade. The announcement is aimed at setting an agenda challenge to other nations before the upcoming COP28 in Bahrain. The UK announcement said that the new projects would bolster its economy, enhance its energy security and advance the nation's path to net zero emissions. UK government reports show that the decade from 2010 to 2020, the UK spent almost half of all offshore wind investments in Europe, worth around £48 billion making it the biggest market for capital spending commitments. The new announcement is expected to top this. Reports show it is also anticipated that around a £100 billion of private investment will be flowing into the UK's energy transition, which is expected to support up to 480,000 jobs by 2030, including 90,000 jobs in the offshore wind section. And then a new position paper by corporate leaders group Europe called on the European Union to reduce its 2040 greenhouse gas emissions by at least 90% by 2030. 
compared to 1990 levels to avoid passing irreversible tipping points. This should include no more than 8 to 10% coming from carbon removals, they said. The target of at least 90% represents a level of ambition aligned with the Paris Agreement, so it would limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It's based on assessments conducted by the European Scientific Advisory Board on Climate Change. The report emphasizes that this target reflects the urgency of the climate, the nature and the energy crises. It is an adequate science-based target and will allow for steep emissions cuts over the next decade. It's an opportunity for the EU to send a clear signal to businesses that climate action will remain at the heart of the EU's political agenda for the next two decades the report said. And that's a very positive note, not only as an example to Australia, but it's a good good note to end this particular global roundup. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Thanks for that, Colin. Good to see the uh, good news at the end again. Things are happening, but the crisis is happening at the same time, so interesting. It's an interesting dance that we, uh, we're we experiencing. We're well and truly part of it. This might be a good time to have a, a chat about the Melbourne Town Hall meeting that occurred on, on the 9th. What, what's your t- I felt very enthusiastic at the end of it and the, the atmosphere there all day was uh, really positive. What, what's your take on what happened? Well, I think it's uh, important, actually, that we play some of the speeches so the listeners can judge and maybe tell us what they think. I felt this was a very important meeting and there were some great speeches there. Let's give some room for that the next 15, 20 minutes or so that we listen to the keynote speeches at least. I mean, it was a three hour long meeting, right? And I think for me, what what stood out was that, you know, we think we have this democratically elected government and what we learned at that meeting was that that's actually not the case. What we have is a government run by the fossil fuel industry and other wealthy vested interests. And they not only run this country, they write the laws, which means, you know, we think we live in a democracy, but no, our democracy has been hijacked. And that has a name, there's a technical name for that. It's called state capture. And we heard several of the keynote speakers at this event talking about state capture. I think that was actually also voted up by the audience there, the attendees of the meeting, as the most important thing that we need to end. Because that's the reason why 73 billion Australian taxpayer dollars are being handed over every year to these fossil fuel industry people. I got that figure from a new report from the IMF, which says that globally, the fossil fuel subsidies, which is taxpayer money that's handed out from democratically elected governments to the fossil fuel dynasty, hit a record $7 trillion in 2022. This is after Paris Agreement, after all these many years of talking about the climate crisis. We're still handing over $7 trillion to run the fossil fuel industry. This is the madness of the world that we live in. And that's what many of the speakers were touching on. The meeting was kicked off, importantly, with a young person. A report now has found, after asking 3,000 young Australians in the age between 18 and 24, I think it was, 
about climate. More than half of them said that they had climate anxiety or eco-anxiety. And to kick off and set the scene for this event, we heard a climate striker, a young person, a school student, 15 years old, who talked about her perspective on this whole problem and what the youth intends to do about it. My name is Charlotte Glaze. I'm 15 years old and I attend Paran High School. And I'm one of the organisers for School Strike for Climate NAM. We organise youth-led actions pressuring the government, corporations into more meaningful, ambitious and urgent steps towards climate crisis. Um, I actually joined School Strike for Climate on accident. So despite having been very, very passionate about the environment for most of my life, I joined on accident while I was at a rally a few years ago. I was at this rally, my friends and I were there, we were yelling, we were chanting, and I was handed a megaphone and said, talk. <laughs> and I did, um, and now I'm here. <laughs> um, over the years, School Strive for Climate has grown from a small group of friends all passionate about the environment to a nationwide organisation that organises strikes with well over 30,000 people all over Australia in attendance for just one strike. Obviously, we will not be able to solve the climate crisis just at this forum, nor will we be able to solve the climate crisis at any forum or conference, no matter how big or international it is. What we need now is collective action, and today is another great example of this. We need local and state governments to work with everyone, to work with young people, First Nations people who are some of the most impacted and vulnerable communities of climate change and the broader community. The world for change is here. We just need to act. An action I'd like to call your attention to is the Make It 16 campaign, which is a current campaign to lower the voting age to 16, which will be a crucial step in young people's voices being heard. In conclusion, let me emphasize this. Our future is on the line and we refuse to be the generation that watches it crumble. Youth climate activism is not a choice, it's an obligation and a responsibility to protect our planet. The time for excuses and procrastination is over. I'd like to thank the organizers of this event Mal and Malcolm for reaching out to School Strive for Climate and giving me the opportunity to do a short little speech um, and come represent the voice of young people. If young people in your life want to become more active in climate action, please mention to them our socials as we're currently planning our biggest rally yet in November. So keep your eye out and I hope to see you and your young people there. <laughs> When we talk about voters and elections, you know, the, the voters are getting younger and younger simply because every year there's 400,000 new young people who have their 18 years birthday and suddenly can vote. And at the other end, there are voters who pass away. What that means is that now, for the first time, there are more voters who are younger than 50 than those who are older than 50. So the people who are, let's say, from 18 to 45 actually get a bigger and bigger say on what's happening at the elections. Every year, more young people are coming in. So we do have a federal election coming in possibly even a year from now, maybe two, but it could already happen in a year. That's when we'll see, I think, a change in, maybe in the whole political system that we have, because the teal independents have shown a new way. And interestingly, I noticed that at the Melbourne Town Hall, they were not called the teals. They were called the climate independents. Maybe that's what we should be calling them. To give you an impression about 
a strong statement about the state capture. Let's listen to another of the keynote speakers, Mark Diesendorf. We've had him in the Sustainable Hour already, but uh, he condensed his message when he had to speak to the audience of uh, the Melbourne Town Hall down to just six minutes. Good day, everyone. Well, my name is Mark Diesendorf, and I'm an env environmental scientist and an environmental campaigner for over 40 years. And first, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to take part in this very important strategic meeting on the climate emergency in your town hall meeting. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person today, but in my role as a volunteer with the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service, I'm actually leading a public bushwalk today at beautiful Muagamara Nature Reserve. So I've been asked to introduce the main themes of our new book, The Path to a Sustainable Civilization. Our book identifies the socio-economic and political barriers to an ecologically sustainable, socially just society. And it proposes a strategy for overcoming those barriers. As you know, we are facing existential threats, yet most of our decision makers and influencers seem to be powerless to take effective action. And the reason for this is that they've been captured by very powerful vested interests. And these vested interests have been holding back effective climate action. They've been more broadly destroying the natural environment upon which we depend as a life support system. They've been fostering increasing social inequality. And last but not least, They've been dragging us into unnecessary, destructive wars and international confrontations that are likely to trigger a nuclear war between superpowers. And in this situation, multiple Australian sites would almost certainly be targets. So what are the tools that we can actually attack? What are the tools used by these vested interests to capture nation states? Well, They include, of course, and we all know, political donations, and they have to be brought under control. They include revolving door jobs between ministers and ministerial advisors on one hand, and the vested interests, the industries and industry associations on the other hand. And those revolving door jobs go in two directions, both directions. The tools involve concentrated media ownership, which once we had regulations against in Australia, but they seem to have disappeared. They include the so-called think tanks that often actually write government policies. And very important, the tools used by vested interests include the existing economic system, which is based, as you know, on the exploitation of the environment and the vast majority of people. These forces are driving our civilization towards collapse. If we want to stop this collapse and transition to a better society, we have to disable these driving forces. It's not enough to focus on individual issues like climate change and poverty and deforestation and so on. We have to deal with the driving forces as well. The strength of the vested interests is, of course, their wealth, which leads to political power. And But their weaknesses are that they are very small in numbers and their goals are very selfish. 
our strength, the community strength, is in huge numbers, provided we can organize them into a coherent force with clear targets that will unite the community and benefit the majority of people. And of course, our goals are not selfish. Our goals are for the common good. This suggests that community-based environmental and social justice and economic reform and peace and trade union and public health groups must form alliances to attack the driving forces as well as to continue action on their own respective specific issues. President Franklin D. Roosevelt is supposed to have told a visiting delegation of lobbyists, okay, you've convinced me. Now get out there and make me do it. And I think this is a very clear political understanding that we have to put enormous pressure and enormous forces on the decision makers to weaken the driving forces. And that will help all the community organizations to, to achieve their goals. The rich, rich countries and rich individuals are responsible for the vast majority of environmental impacts, including, of course, climate change. So by reducing the gap between the rich and the poor, by taxing the rich to help fund universal basic services for the majority, in this way, we can greatly improve the environment and social justice simultaneously. Now, what do I mean by universal basic services? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It means an expanded public education, public health, public housing, public transport, public parks, you name it, so that the majority of people have the basis for, for a good life, for a well-being economy, without having to try to make themselves rich. And furthermore, if we can push simultaneously for universal basic services as well as environmental protection, then people who would otherwise resist the changes are likely to come in and in support the changes. Towards the end of the meeting, I'll outline some specific policies for disabling state capture that we discuss in more detail in the book, The Path for a Sustainable Civilization. Meanwhile, best wishes for your deliberations today. They are vital for the future of humanity. Said Mark Diesendorf. He's an associate professor. We've had him in the Sustainable Hour a number of times. Almost 10 years ago, the first time where he talked about 100% renewable energy is possible. And then again, now that he's got this book out, which I think is really important. I have it in my hand today and I'm going to be reading it in the coming weeks. I wish I could invite every one of you listeners who maybe feel that oh, isn't what he's talking about there dangerous in this or that way. A lot of what Mark Diesendorf is talking about, in my opinion, is very much the Danish society that I grew up in. A society where well-being and a more sort of evenly spread income, where the rich people are taxed and where it's not put up as on the pedestal as that getting rich is the only thing life is about. All that is not some sort of a utopia a dream fantasy of Mark Diesendorf's. Come to Denmark and see how it works. The welfare society was built in the 60s and the 70s, and uh, 
it's working very well. And if certainly if you look at the statistics from the United Nations, every year they publish this happiness report where they go around in all the countries in the world and ask people, how content are you with your life? What are your fears and so on? And year after year after year, the Scandinavian countries, either Finland or Denmark, come up as top of the world. And I tell you why, because people take care of each other. And that I think Mark Diesendorf probably hasn't, I don't know if he's been to Denmark, but uh, I wish, you know, that we would stop talking about it as some sort of a fantasy or a utopia and instead look at that it's actually something out there in another part of the world which is working very well. There's no need to reinvent that wheel. It's it's uh, functioning and, and flourishing and those countries continually, Scandinavian countries continually come up as tops of of uh, when when issues like well-being are looked at all over the world. So yeah, it's been really interesting to getting back to Mark, been really interesting to f to follow uh, his transition, I guess, from uh, yeah, we've been fortunate to have him on a number of times and you can just see each time it's getting his responses are reflecting uh, what's happening on the planet. And he's gone from being saying, just providing solutions in terms of renewable energy to being convinced and a, a, a vocal advocate for systemic change. Yeah, and basically saying we won't get to where we want to in terms of the climate unless we remove certain things. And the biggest one of them all is state capture. G'day. Well, it's Mark Diesendorf back again. And now I'm going to suggest some targets for an alliance of environmental, social justice, peace, trade union and public health groups. And some of the targets are pretty obvious from my introduction. They are political donations, revolving door jobs, concentrated media ownership and the so-called think tanks that often actually write government policies. And here I'm thinking of the Minerals Council of Australia, the Institute of Public Affairs and the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is funded by the US government and by the weapons industry, as well as by the Australian government. Now, each of these issues can be targeted. They can be turned into very strong campaign targets that would unite the different community groups that I've mentioned. In addition to this, we have to target neoliberal economics or neoliberalism, as it's called, because neoliberalism supports state capture and is a tool of state capture. It's an ideology based on free market capitalism. It's supposed to be based on neoclassical economics theory, but when you actually examine that theory, you find there's no basis at all. So neoliberalism campaigns for small government, for low taxes, for leaving all the big decisions and programs to the market and rely on, relying on trickle-down economics from the rich to the poor, which doesn't really exist in most cases. Neoliberalism failed during the global financial crisis and it failed during combating the COVID pandemic. Governments had, which paid lip service to neoliberalism had to create and spend hundreds of billions of dollars, that's billions with a B, in order to combat the situation during those two crises. They had to throw out neoliberalism 
which is totally opposed to high government spending. And then they reassured the community that they would return to neoliberalism. Well, not if we can help it. Neoliberalism just needs a push from the community to topple it once and forever. In particular, the myth that endless growth on a finite planet is feasible and desirable has to be discarded for once and for all. We can see this if we look at the role of fossil fuels in global energy consumption over the past 10 or 20 years. In 2009, fossil fuels supplied 80% of total global energy consumption. And over the next 10 years, despite the very rapid growth of renewable energy, in 2019, fossil fuels still supplied 80% of global energy consumption. How's this possible? It's possible because of the enormous growth in global energy consumption, and much of that growth, despite the growth in renewable electricity, much of that growth was in fossil fuels, especially in transport and in combustion heating. Another myth that has to be knocked over, another myth of neoliberalism, is the notion that tax deductions for the rich will somehow benefit everyone. That's been refuted by study after study. And it's the rich that have the biggest environmental impacts. It's the rich that should be taxed more heavily. We have to start discussing how Australia and other rich countries can transition to a steady state economy. And I'm pleased to see that our treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has actually made a very slight, timid move in that direction by promoting the so-called well-being economy as a first step. The well-being economy does not consider GDP as the only indicator of well-being. The state capture by the US military-industrial complex also has to be dealt with. For a start, the wars have enormous environmental impacts, enormous greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with them. And suitable campaign targets, for starters, could be the war-making powers of the Prime Minister. Because in this country, the Prime Minister can take us into a war without any discussion in Parliament. It also, we also need to critique the role of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So these are some examples drawn from our book, The Path to a Sustainable Civilization. There are examples of issues that we can target if we bring together the united strength of environmental, social justice, peace, trade union and public health groups. So best wishes for your future deliberations and I certainly hope that I'll be able to join you in Melbourne at a future meeting. Thank you. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. The big money manages to convince people that the, the right they have to not pay tax. Uh, you know, the, the, the Morrison government and the two previous governments from the Abbott government, they won each election on promises to reduce taxing for the rich. And we we voted them in. Yeah. And while we're on talking about voting, I don't recall ever having a referendum and voting yes to allow 
the fossil fuel industry to have a lobby in Parliament. But they've got a permanent lobby in Parliament. They've got over a 100 lobbyists on behalf of all of the different industrial things. Um, but I hate being the Cassandra. Like, I hate having to sort of tell these hard truths that, that I think are terrifying. I think what's happening on the planet right now is genuinely terrifying. And if you're not terrified by it, you probably don't understand it. You know, the society is so kind of in denial about this. It's insane. It's flat earthism. I mean, look at this. I'm, I'm standing here amongst a group of people who are eminently qualified to tell us what is going on. Anyone listening to this can turn on their TV, turn on and, and watch your channel and see today Madrid underwater, Sri Lanka underwater, Las Vegas, the desert city underwater. Flooding, wildfires, record temperatures all over the world, lack of sea ice, dramatic changes in wildlife distributions, people migrating from one part of the planet to the other because they're, they're, they're in severe drought. Is there any ambiguity about climate breakdown? There's none at all. China just saw its highest temperature in recorded history, topping 126 degrees Fahrenheit, smashing the previous record by three degrees. Meanwhile, a third of people in the United States face excessive heat warnings or advisories this weekend, and Europe could record its hottest day ever this week. Italian authorities issued an extreme health risk in 16... So there's just one question in my mind right now. How much worse is it going to get? Okay, so let me be very clear. This is going to be relentless and it will carry on getting worse forever unless we change the basis of our economy and of our society. So to give one small example, some of the people you've been interviewing in the reports over the last 10 minutes or so have been tourists, some of which will have flown into the destinations they are in now. In the future, either there will be less air travel or there will be more and more of this kind of devastation getting worse forever. It really is that simple. So I'm afraid we need to be as relentless and as focused uh, as the climate damage is relentless. We need to relentlessly determine to our politicians, to our media, to everyone who has power in our society that we are insistent that the current trajectory has to change because until it does it will carry on getting worse forever right and i guess uh, all of this is evidence that climate change is real and impacting us in more dangerous ways than ever before absolutely if you ever thought climate change that's something for my children or grandchildren to worry about i think that you don't think that anymore what we are seeing this year is very bad, but it is going to be worse almost certainly next year. We're in the middle of what's called an El Nino event in the world's weather and climate. It means that the climate is going to be unusually changeable and unusually hot, probably, for the next couple of years. We are just at the start of this. And this El Nino is, of course, being massively added to by dangerous human-caused climate change. So yes, no one who is even remotely serious has any queries about what's happening anymore. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And of course, that's what climate scientists and climate activists have been talking about for a long time now. We need to move from talk to action. 
And I mean in people's individual lives, but much more important than that. I mean together in our politics, in our societies. It's really good that you on TRT are having this serious focus today on climate. But too often the media has been slipshod in its coverage of this issue. This needs to be on top of the news every week, not just when there is an extreme heat wave. Right. Because this crisis is coming to take away our futures unless we focus on it. Right, and certainly we as TRT World take pride in spreading awareness and telling the truth about climate to our audience. Now, Rupert, before I let you go, I'm not sure if you have an answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Certainly, combating climate change requires long-term sustainable solutions, but uh, given uh, uh, the fact that uh, there are so many heat waves happening across the world right now, is there anything that uh, the international community can do in the short run to get some sort of short-term relief? That's a great question. I would highlight two things. Firstly, we need to look at ways of reducing the causes of climate damage, which are relatively quick. So one, for example, is reducing the amount of methane that is given off, because methane is a much stronger climate damaging gas than carbon dioxide, but it also lasts less time in the atmosphere. So if we reduce methane levels, for example, by reducing the amount of leakage that occurs when natural gas or fracking is extracted from the uh, from the earth, then we can have a quicker effect than by targeting CO2. And secondly, I, the other thing I would say is we've got to focus on adaptation, which means we've got to focus on building our resilience, building our preparedness. Of course, we have to reduce the amount of climate damaging gases that we're pumping into the atmosphere, but we also need to be much readier to deal with these emergencies as they arise. So what that means is, for example, a stronger focus on emergency preparedness and disaster preparedness. What it means also is a stronger focus on, for example, making sure that we've got food storage and water storage better sorted more locally in more of our countries. We're not going to be able to depend in the future on having the stable, long global supply chains that we've had in the past. Part of what adaptation means is being readier to deal with what we're going to encounter more locally and we're going to encounter more and more of it. Fascinating insights into the topic. Rupert Reed, thank you very much for talking to us here on TRT World. It must be now time to introduce our very patient guests, Tony. They have been. They've been very patient. So, and yeah, our first guests today are Cameron Steele and Lockie Chumley, and they're representing the Northwest Alliance, a group coalition of groups that, that have come together uh, around the concerns that the the documentation that's come out looking at the future of of the the west and the north areas in, in in geelong district just aren't looking at environmental issues so welcome fellows welcome to the sustainable hour and yeah let's hear about your concerns and and what we what can be done about them thanks tony and the sustainable hour really good to be here um yeah like you said tony we're um we're from the northwest alliance which is a coalition of environmentally associated groups um around the north and west of geelong um and we're pretty much championing the 
the natural values of the north and west of Geelong, um, trying to protect them as best as possible as um, this, uh, the north northwest growth zones are planned and implemented. And specifically, we're responding to a plan that the councils put out, um, which is sort of their plan for how they'll protect nature as these developments go ahead. But we think it's completely inadequate and we're just trying to raise awareness. And um, we've got a, a short window of time where people can put in submissions um, saying that they don't think it's adequately protecting um our natural environment um and yeah we're, we're supporting people through that process as well cameron would you like to add on to that yeah look um my group uh, uh palm people for living morable um we've been advocating for the morable for well over a decade um uh had some wins had some losses um but it's identified as the most flowspeth river in the state and this development um, is going along two quite significant waterways um, in Cowish Creek and the Moorable River, um, uh, particularly the western um, section of the, the proposed development. And whenever you have development, you inevitably have biodiversity loss. Um, that that's, goes hand in hand with any development. And it's how you manage that biodiversity loss, which is really important. And if you've got organizations or councils who really get on the front foot there's some good things that can be achieved it's not all about you know the negative but that requires some strong will um and you know the the topic has been around the climate our rivers are going to be climate refuges for our species it's also the ability for climate dependent species to migrate the moral lies in the north uh, south aspect and the importance of rivers like that to how we manage the impacts of climate change are, are going to be vital. So there is a real opportunity to really secure some decent areas around these really significant waterways and produce those refuges. Um, but we're seeing um, proposed widths that are really inadequate for the job that they need to do and that's a big part of the push um, is to try and get those conservation widths dramatically extended and doing the job that they really need to do when we're facing a climate future. Thank you. Last week we had Sarah Halfway, who has been, you know, a Lara advocate, and we talked about the incinerator which they are planning to build out there. There is a change in council, isn't there? With three f- new members coming in just recently, apart from Sarah Halfway, also Elise Wilkinson was just elected, and she was a put climate first candidate when she ran three years ago in the election, and certainly has the environment up there. Environmental protection is one of the things that that is very dear to her. It looks to me as if we have a complete change in council at the moment, and that would be an opportunity for you guys. Oh, indeed, and, and councils are. Uh vital in this moment, uh, either in the Golden Plains, and it really took a lot of lobbying to um, get that council to come and visit uh, parts of the river and etc. And once you get people on the ground, um, even if they're sitting on the fence on things like this, 
um, they come around and it's experiencing these natural, you know, wonders in our area and then really stepping up and looking to um, uh, work to protect them. And I think that, that really is a big part of it. When you've got good decision makers um, in positions like that, that, that really is uh, what it's going to take. Thanks for that, Cam. Now, when you're talking about the Murrabool River and the um, development, you're talking about urban development, are you? And the uh, development on the uh, where the Murrabool River joins the Barwon River in Fyansford. That's a huge new development on what used to be the um, Geelong Cement Works. Am I correct in assuming that that's what you were talking about? Uh, that development, that area will come on stream later. Uh, at the moment, um, we're looking at the north and west growth areas, and the western growth areas come down from the um, the viaduct, the beautiful bluestone viaduct, mm -hmm. down to Batesford. So the the area to the south isn't the subject of the EPPC process that we're going through at the moment. It's had a development which was put on the West Bank, which is a Riverstone estate, and we had to fight quite hard to get an increase in buffer widths um, to the river and we managed to get uh, along with landcare groups um, an extension of the seven hectares out to 17 hectares so there's some good conservation areas that have been created because of that lobbying what we need to see is even better job on the eastern side so if you're in Batesford um, and you drive around there's a beautiful Morable River walk that you can take Basically, from in, within the Riverstone Estate, it's about a, a kilometre and a half of river. There's some uh, swamp wallabies. You'll see platypus and all the rest of it. We need that protected from urban development. We need the escarpments protected from urban development. There's um, grassy plains um, species within that that need protection. So we we have an opportunity, not only uh, to protect those species, but also there's an opportunity for using the water that come off those developments in a far better way than we used to. It used to go into sewage pipes, get pumped down and into our ocean outfalls. We've actually got a, a, uh, an opportunity to treat that water on site and move it up the Morable River to wine growers up the river, which will allow the freeing up of licenses to allow more river uh, water to be left in um, the Morable River. So. We not only need to focus on, you know, the real threats to biodiversity through that, through the whole area, both the north and the west, but also try and point out the, the opportunities that lie um, within these developments to secure better outcomes for biodiversity and for the Moorable and Cowies Creek. Yeah, Cameron, the, a lot of people aren't, wouldn't be aware of your concerns and that, you know, part of coming on today is for you to... Yeah, go out, go through those. What about someone say I'm concerned about it, but I'm not sure what the real issue is? How are you guys doing anything about that? Yeah, we've um, got a, a website up now, the Northwest Alliance. Uh, sorry, NorthwestAlliance.au. Uh, we've also been running a series of um, submission workshops. We've got a contact numbers on the website, so if anybody um, look, I, I know from past experience on campaigns that people putting submissions in really do count. Um, politicians generally consider one, one submission equals the concerns of one to 200 people. 
because one or 200 people will bother to sit down and write a submission. So that goes into the calculations. So if, if you get 50 submissions through, that, that makes a big difference. And, and we're really encouraging people, even if they've never written a submission before in their life, to, to really um, take that opportunity. And I think Lock 2 has got a good group around the Cowies Creek area, which um, are, are pretty vocal on this stuff. Yeah, yeah we've, we've got a, an information brochure um, that sort of details the maps and um, some particular species that are really worth protecting. Um, they're endangered species that persist in these areas. So it's really quite miraculous that they're still here and we want to sort of enhance the, the habitat for these species and other species. I'll just say we saw... Um, on the eastern side of Anarchy Road, we saw an echidna on Cowies Creek, which, um, you know, there's a lot of biodiversity that is still here that needs protecting and enhancing. On the subject of uh, leadership and the value of sending letters and messages, uh, it was something that we briefly were talking about before this show began. I was talking to Mick and we were talking about how our leaders, although they carry the title of our leaders, and I'm talking about at all levels, from council right the way through to state and then federal ministers, our leaders no longer lead us. What they do is employ focus groups and they get the idea of the focus groups and that's what motivates them. They are actually followers of opinion polls because they basically want to be re-elected at every level. So the importance of writing and not writing the type of uh, emails or letters that are um, quite clearly and obviously uh, a group action thing, the, the importance of individually writing to councillors and members of parliament can't be stressed enough because if they get an individual letter from an individual person and not just a bulk thing, they will listen to it because they're followers. They're not leaders. We no longer have leaders mm. in any of our um, speakers' chambers, if you could say. To just get back to the workshops that uh, you, you guys are, are running. I understand some have happened already. Am I right in assuming that they are to help to guide people in the submissions that they send in? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've got a few ideas of um, what specifically we're asking for from the council to amend their um, environmental protection plan. But, yeah, like you say, we've got one, a submission writing workshop on, I think it's the 22nd of September. And that's at Labuan Square in Norlane. So if you live in Norlane or Corio or like really anywhere in the northwest Geelong area, um, yeah, it'd be great to see you at that workshop. Um, the submissions close on 5 p.m. Monday, the 25th of September. Um, so there's really not not a whole lot of time. And so if you want to share share this message. Um, with your friends and family. It's really something that affects all of us who live here in the northwest of Geelong. 
Thank you very much for this. I hope uh, we have listeners out there who will do that. Again, let's repeat the website where they could find all this information. Northwestalliance.au Northwestalliance.au Lucky, I talked earlier about that there's this survey and more than half of young people in the age between 18 and 24 now suffer from eco-anxiety. What would be your advice to people if they have that <laughs> eco-anxiety, which apparently so many young people do now? Mm. Well, first, I just like to say that that's totally normal to be responding in that way in such sort of dire times that we find ourselves in. I mean, I can just speak from my experience connecting with like-minded community and um, collaborating on meaningful projects that feel like they're contributing to creating the change that we want to see in the world um, feels like something that is is it's connective, connecting like particularly with these kinds of projects connecting you to the places that you live in, um, the creatures that still live here and the people who create culture and care about these places. So I'd say find those groups of people and do stuff with them. Lucky, how's the music going? It's good. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of expressing eco-anxiety as well. So this one's called The Change Has Just Begun. What? Here we stand at the edge of Cario Bay Look across the Kuyangs Rising up from the grassy plain On water on country What 
does it take to see? What does it take to imagine a different way to be? But we sing now for this land. Go on. Yep. Yeah, I, I was just um, wanting to go to one of Colin's earlier points about um, you know, where where the power lies and the decision makers. The, our lobbying uh, for Palm is um, encapsulated in just one saying: we're we're here to enable good people within organisations to do good things. And there are a lot of good people within organisations, including, as you say, a fresh batch of councillors. They need to hear our voices. And when they do, that empowers them. And basically, that's what we're attempting to do here is make sure those voices are heard. Yeah. And that then gives them the power to, um, or the legitimacy to, to make decisions on behalf of us. Is that corollary to that is an, another saying that I've, I've come across that, that evil or bad flourishes when good people do nothing. But it's, yeah, it's just the people that don't want change rely on people concerned about that change, just being quiet about it. They rely. Yeah. And a lot of people step up to, um, you know, there'll be people within the uh, City Grove Geelong environmental side of it, planning, who have gone in there, have gone away and done their degree and all the rest of it, wanting to make a difference. And, you know, they're, they're getting faced with the developers pushing very hard in one direction. What we've got to do is just have their back. And, you know, with the, this process, Geelong, City Grey Geelong have to basically put a submission into the federal government dictating how they're going to look after these threatened species and how they'll provide enhanced habitat and all the rest of it. Our submissions will go to the federal government as well. They all get bundled up. And, you know, we've got a, a minister at the moment, um, Tanya Plebisic. I mean, there's some ups and downs as with any minister, but, you know, that, that's a fairly powerful bar that the city of Great Geelong have to jump over. And I think the more that people contribute to this, um, this issue, the stronger the response will be from the federal government. Thank you, Cameron Steele and Lockie Chumley, for showing us uh, that we can make a difference when we step up together, just as you are doing. That's what the Sustainable Hour is all about. We'll be back next week with more brilliant examples of this. Until then, be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. People say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference.
Watching 